Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, BC, we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. As I mentioned, we are privileged here to welcome in just a moment to the stage Dr. John Newfelt, and many of you will know him. He's not a stranger here to Central. He's spoken here before. Uh, But you may also know him through his ministry of uh, Back to the Bible that is reaching many, many people with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Dr. Neufeld has been in pastoral ministry for decades, and he has served and uh, encouraged and built and and, uh, has been used by by God to uh, encourage many people and strengthen the faith of many through those years. One of whom is actually our own lead pastor, Barton, who counts him among those who have most influenced him over his years as a student and, uh, and even now up to this day as a, as a pastor. So would you please um, welcome to the stage Dr. John Neufeld. Well, it's a joy to be here, and uh, it's an honor to stand here. Uh, my wife and I were through uh, this area last summer. We were uh, just on a little motorcycle trip for our vacation and uh, stopped and had an opportunity to chat with uh, your own Pastor Barton. I do think of your own Pastor Barton as one of the finest pastors in this country, and uh, you are blessed as a congregation to have him as a godly man, amen, um, who exposits the Scripture faithfully, faithfully. Well, I know it's Christmas time, and uh, we're going to look at uh, a number of texts. I want to apologize at the outset because it's normally my practice to to preach through a given text together, Uh, but it is Christmas, and I'm also, you know, a guest speaker, and uh, you have a theme going, and the theme is about the adoration of the Christ who has come, and I do want to speak to you about that by comparing the greatness of Jesus to all who have ever gone before him. I think that Christians should objectively say that Jesus Christ is the greatest human being who has ever lived, and we celebrate, we celebrate his birth and the fact that light has come into a darkened world. And I wonder to myself, how do I do that? And so uh, you might want to have two, uh, your, your finger in two places in the Scripture, Exodus chapter 2 and John chapter 1. I'll look at both of those texts. But what I want to do today is to talk about Christ greater than Moses, Christ the better Moses. There is a way of going through the First Testament, and when we do that, uh, to look at every single one of the characters that we find there and not look at their lives as a role model for us, but to look at their lives rather as as a foretaste or an anticipation of the greater that is to come, as an example. For instance, we've all heard of you know, stories like Dare to be a Daniel or uh, Be Brave Like David Was and Face the Goliaths in Your Life and You Know God Will Be With You. But I'm going to argue that I-, I don't think that's the best way of using the First Testament. We ought to retell the story of David standing against Goliath and saying that none of us can stand against Goliath. David did it on our behalf, but now God has sent a greater David who slays a greater Goliath, and we, through faith in him, receive all of the benefits of the greatest victory that was ever achieved. I think that's how we ought to understand the First Testament, and we ought to be able to go through it and see as as an anticipation of something greater, something better. And so what I want to do is to talk about Moses 
and think about how great he was, and then to think about when Christ came into the world, how Moses' greatness was overshadowed by one, well, like John the Baptist said, that Moses would have been honored to even stoop before him and, and tie the sandals of his shoes. So that's what I want to get at. Now, we know that greatness is something that, well, you know, our world speaks about it all the time. Uh, whether it's in sports, you know, you know, in Canada we say the greatest hockey player of all times was number 91, 99, sorry, 91. I don't even know who 91 was. 99. I mean, we always say it's the greatest hockey player that's ever played. I mean, you know, Americans will say the greatest quarterback that's ever played is now playing was Tom Brady. Now, whether or not you agree with me, don't stone me, but, you know, he's just got a record that's better than everybody else, right? But not only that, when we think about, you know, who would be the greatest world leader alive today? Or, or who would be the greatest prime minister we've ever had? Or maybe the greatest president that the United States has ever had? Who is the greatest scientist? Like, whatever field of human endeavor, I mean, we have Nobel Prizes, uh, Time Magazine has for years done, first the man of the year, the person of the year, and basically we're celebrating the greatest among us all. And when I say that Jesus is greater than Moses, I'm really saying something. You know, if you're a, a Jew at the time of Christ, you'd have been shocked to hear someone even think that were possible. Or even if you're an Orthodox Jew today, you might say the same thing. It's not possible, and yet Hebrews 3 verse 3 insists on the following. It says, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moses is just the house. He was built by Christ himself. And so if we go through the life of Moses, we should be able to think about how Jesus has surpassed him in every detail. And so that when we come to the cradle, we ought to worship rightly. So let me start by trying to understand both Jesus and Moses. One of the ways in which we can see how similar they were, that is at their birth, both Moses and Jesus uh, had persecutors who sought their death. You know, in the case of Moses, he was not personally sought. But as you know, Pharaoh had given an order to, to cull the Israelites. There were just too many of them. He felt they were a threat to his own empire. It was because not long before that, Egypt itself had been an occupied nation, and they were afraid that something bad could happen again. And so, you know, Pharaoh says, let's get their numbers down, and we're going to do this the cruel but effective way. We're going to simply kill every firstborn for a season until we bring the numbers down sufficiently that we no longer find them to be a threat. And Moses is born at such a time. I mean, you know how the story goes. His, you know, he's kept in you know, his own home for three months. And then his, uh, his parents, his mother, puts him in a basket and, uh, you know, and, and tars the basket so that it won't sink. And they float it down the Nile. And he is picked up by Pharaoh's daughter. And you know, we don't know exactly who that woman was from my vantage point. It's very likely that that woman was Hatshepsut, who ended up being the first female pharaoh in history. But at that point in time, she was the, the daughter of pharaoh. Now, whether or not that's the case, we don't know. But certainly it happens in a real time in history. And um, 
it is in this case that we see how similar this is. Jesus is uh, born in Bethlehem. We don't know exactly how long his parents were there and how long it was until the wise men or the magi showed up. But immediately afterwards, uh, Joseph received a dream. And the dream was that Herod sought the child's life. And so, interestingly enough, Jesus goes where? He goes to Egypt. And it's interesting because he would have probably have gone to Alexandria. And there in Alexandria, there would have been a large Jewish community. They would have lost themselves. They would not have seemed any different than anyone else. But that's the similarity between the two of them. Uh, years ago, I remember being in Egypt with uh, my wife Kathy. And uh, um, we visited a church that was begun um, in a garbage dump outside of Cairo. There are numerous people outside of Cairo who just collect garbage. Um, that's how they make a living. And uh, so, you know, there's, I don't know exactly how many, but I think there are tens of thousands of them in there. And a church has begun, and they have blasted out a number of caves, and they meet in caves on the side of the cliffs. And over one of them, had, uh, someone had imprinted in English, out of Egypt I have called my son, with a remembrance for the people of Egypt that Christ himself was here as well. Not only did Moses come from this place, but Jesus did as well. And uh, in fact, that's exactly what the book of Matthew says. When I was, as we consider both uh, Jesus and Moses, we consider that even as children, they had a holy destiny. Now, Moses himself would not have come to that realization quickly. We know that he was raised in the household of Pharaoh, but we also know that he would have had a very strong influence of the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if you're surprised by that, chances are you've been watching too many movies on Moses. And don't feel bad that you know the movie makers get the Christian gospel wrong. They get everything else wrong too, right? You know that. So they're not really picking on us. But I want you to, if you have your Bible with you, let's start with Exodus chapter 2. And it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months, and when she could hide him no longer, she took a basket and so forth. Now, skip down to verse 7. They flo floated him down the Nile. It says in verse 7, And then his sister, that is, Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go, and the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her son. When the child grew up. Now, it's hard for us to come to terms with exactly how Moses' education went. But please don't think that one time later on in life, Moses suddenly woke up and said, oh, I didn't know I was an Israelite this whole time. I mean, that's how the movies seem to portray it. But as a matter of fact, Moses was raised by his mom and dad even while he was raised in Pharaoh's household at the same time. I think there was in Moses this conflict that was going on throughout his childhood. And the conflict was, on the one hand, he would have been receiving an education of the nobility in the temples along the Nile. I mean, Kathy and I visited those temples, and uh, we had this wonderful privilege of being guided by a tour guide who, was, who had his Ph.D. in Egyptology, 
and who could read the cuneiform writings and translate them from the side of the temple. And I remember because he took me to that one place where he said, most likely this would be the very place where the male children of the nobility would have received their education. And he read me all the cuneiform writings, which you know, were really expression of you know, Egyptian paganism. And so you can imagine Moses being raised both with that and at the same time being raised by his own mother who told him the story of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and of Joseph and his journey into Egypt and how his people had come here and of the glorious plan of God. And the whole time I would imagine Moses being torn between these two realities. And the one reality would have been the reality of the call of God on his life and the other would have been the reality of the call of Egypt on his life because the time when Moses was there Egypt was reaching her zenith and gold was flowing like the Nile and there was wealth that was to be had there Moses no doubt was torn between that if you think contrast Moses childhood with that of Jesus Well, there is no such drama in the life of Jesus. After returning from Egypt, he was raised by his father and mother. He would have been raised as an observant Jew. He would have frequently attended his local synagogue. He would have heard the Torah being read. His parents would have uh, gone to Jerusalem on all of the high feast days. Luke tells us they went up every single year as a child to celebrate the Passover And of course, we know of that very important incident when he was 12 years of age. Um, And uh, Luke tells us that his parents were already on the way home and uh, realized that he was not among the company going back. And so they journeyed all the way back in and found him in the temple where he was conversing with the leading rabbis of his day. They were amazed at the questions this 12-year-old was asking them. And when his parents said to him, Son, why have you disgraced us like this? He said, didn't you know that I needed to be in my father's house? It's very significant. My father's house. You know, Jesus at the age of 12 understood that the relationship that he had with the father was a unique relationship that no one else shared. You know, the question that's sometimes asked among theologians is a question that goes like this. Jesus was born truly human, and yet he is fully God. And yet, as a human, surely as a babe of three months, he would not have known that he was fully God. At what point in time does he become aware of not only his calling, but his true identity? It's a fascinating question. But we need to recognize that when we ask that question, understand you're walking on holy ground because the child Jesus becomes a boy and a man and grows up in a very human way. When we worship Jesus, we worship him not only as fully God, but as fully man. But at the age of 12, he must have already realized his own unique status before the Father, and no doubt he would have known that he existed from all of eternity. His parents are struggling to get a grasp of all of that. I guess what I'm trying to give you a contrast is between the ultimate calling of Jesus and the calling of Moses. You remember that both Jesus and Moses were out in the desert. And it was there out of the desert when they came out of the wilderness 
both of them began their public ministry. Jesus, you know, very early in his 30s, but Moses, well, probably at 80 he started. So a little bit, you know, of a late starter. But nonetheless, you'll remember Moses at the burning bush and God speaking to him and saying, take off your sandals for the ground you're standing on is now holy ground. And there he is at the Horeb, which is the mountain of God, and he sees the burning of the bush. And you want to consider that for a moment. He's going to come out of that wilderness, and he's going to be introduced as Israel's great Savior. He will save them from their bondage, and Jesus will come out of the wilderness and be Israel's great Savior as well. But in the context of the calling itself, nowhere is there seen more with greater clarity the greatness of Jesus. You see, because Moses receives the calling, and you'll remember his first response. He'll say, well, you know, I, I don't even know what your name is, God, because after all, he says, how will Israel listen to me and Pharaoh listen to me when I don't even know who, who you are? You'll remember God says, I am that I am. And then Moses goes on and says, uh, there are other problems as well. I don't speak very well. I, I, I tend to stutter. God says, fine, if that's your biggest problem, I'll give your brother Aaron. He'll speak on your behalf. He'll be your prophet. Just tell him what you want him to say, and he'll say it before Pharaoh. And then, God say, and, then and Moses says, well, I, I've got other problems as well. And, uh, and he goes on, and, and finally he says, I just don't want to go. And God's anger burns against Moses. And at that point in time, Moses recognizes that he has been called and that he must go. And that's the beginning of this great ministry of Moses. Think how different it is for Jesus. He enters into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one. You know, sometimes when we tell the story of the temptation of Christ, you know, some of us tell that story as, you know, Jesus had been fasting now for 40 days and and uh, had, you know, and had not eaten, and we think about him as how weakened he must have been, and the, the enemy, Satan, came to tempt him at the point of his greatest weakness. Now, I, I read that story just slightly differently. I don't think that the tempter came to tempt him at his point of greatest weakness, but at his point of greatest strength. Because Jesus had been there fasting and praying for 40 days. And what had he been doing? Because we know that when he answered Satan in his temptations, he answers him by quoting what? From Moses. He quotes from Deuteronomy. Over three times he quotes from Deuteronomy. There's no doubt in my mind that Deuteronomy was the book written by Moses, which every single king of Israel was to write out a copy to himself and to keep it with him as long as he remained king. He was to read it constantly. I have no doubt that Jesus understood that he was being called as the great king of Israel, his greatest liberator of all times, and I have no doubt that he would have spent the time also writing out his own copy of Deuteronomy so that when the enemy came to tempt him, he answers from the book he's been writing out. Do I have that from Scripture? No, I don't. I just simply know that that's what's commanded of all the kings. And, De and Jesus spoke regularly from Deuteronomy. But all of this, I want to point out four contrasts between Jesus and Moses. And the first is, it's the contrast of the Passover. We know that the story of Moses is a story 
of liberation, of the story of salvation. Nine successive plagues. Israel's, I mean, Egypt's economy lies now in ruins. But now it becomes a test of wills. And regardless of the hardship that Egypt is yet to struggle with, Pharaoh says, I will not let them go. And then comes that final plague that Moses unleashes on Pharaoh. In the night, the angel of death will descend on Egypt. And every firstborn whether it's the firstborn of the cattle or any of the livestock or the firstborn son of any family in Egypt, every firstborn will die that, that terrifying night. It's the last of the ten plagues. And then Moses comes to the people of Israel and says, the time has come now for you to slaughter a Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb will be slaughtered and you'll take the blood of the Passover lamb and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of your house. And then when the angel of death comes, he will see the blood of the slaughtered lamb and he will pass over your territory and you'll be saved. You know, it's fascinating. When you read the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel tells us that the problem that Israel faced when they were in Egypt is they had as many idols as the Egyptians were never read the Passover story as if Israel are the good guys and the Egyptians are the bad guys. Indeed, Israel is as sinful as the Egyptians, even while one group is oppressing the other. The sinfulness of Israel is overseen not because they were a better people, but because the blood of a Passover lamb was applied to their doorposts. And Moses led them through a ritual so that you would understand that you always live. You are saved by God, not by virtue of your righteousness, but by virtue of the God who saves. The lamb itself will be your salvation. And of course, we know that Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, sat with his disciples in the upper room to celebrate Passover, the great liberation of the children of Israel from bondage, the story of their salvation. And on that night, he took the Passover bread and says, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. And then he takes the cup, and as you know, the cup of blessing in this cup is now the new covenant in my blood. And so we can see that in Passover, we have an example of two great saviors of Israel. One is Moses, who saves them from slavery and from bondage and leads them to the promise that God gave to Abraham. It's a wonderful liberation. It places Moses in a place that no one else can occupy. And yet what Moses did for Israel is is a pittance compared to what Christ did. Why is that? Well, it's because when Moses takes the people of Israel out of Egypt, we remember what happened. In no time at all, they were complaining. In no time at all, they were building a, an altar that looked like the Egyptian calf god and saying, really, this is the god that brought us out of Egypt. Indeed, let's go back to Egypt Moses brought the people out who continually sinned and rebelled against God. 
And that whole generation that were brought out of Egypt, this marvelous liberation, died in the wilderness because of their rank rebellion against God. Moses' salvation of Israel took them so far, but he never was able to bring them into the promised land. And that's the difference between Jesus and Moses. For whomever Jesus has saved by his own blood, and remember, he is the lamb that was slaughtered, whose blood is applied to our own lives, so that when the angel of judgment comes at the end of the age to judge us for every single word and deed that we have ever done, when we stand before the judgment seat itself and give an answer, for every crime that we have committed against God, we will be exonerated not by Moses' blood, not by the lamb that Moses gave us, but by the lamb of Jesus himself who gives us and leads us into the promised land. Ah, that's the wonder of the difference. I want to give you a second difference between Moses and Jesus. Moses, is, if he's known for anything, is known as the great lawgiver. Jews today speak of the Torah, the law of Moses. He's not just a lawgiver, but he's the prophet who gives the law of God. And he's not just a prophet, he's more than a prophet. Listen to Exodus 33, verse 11. It says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Indeed, at one point in time, and this is found in the book of Numbers, chapter 12, verses 6 to 8, God speaks with those who oppose Moses, and he says, and that is God said, hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. When I speak, when I, with him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And then to the book of Deuteronomy at the end, it says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him, for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land. Indeed, Moses brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai, where the only time in all of human history an entire nation of about two million people stood at the foot of a mountain and together heard the voice of God. Can you imagine such a thing? The whole ground was trembling and God gave his Ten Commandments and then through Moses, God, throughout the successive years, continued to expand that law and, and here's what the psalmist says about the law that Moses gave. Psalm 19, 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes and so forth. The law that Moses gave was the perfect law of God. In our country, we have an imperfect law. There are times when the law of God is, is thwarted in this land. There are times when our laws are unrighteous. But no one ever said that about the law that Moses delivered from God. In every single area, it declared God's character, his justice, 
his glory, his righteousness. Listen to the law of God and understand the kind of a God that we have. In fact, the law perfectly displays the righteousness of God. And that's the greatness of Moses. But listen to John chapter 1, 17 and 18. It says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. A couple of things. Moses spoke with God face to face. Not in riddles, not in mysteries, not in a dream in the night. But God came to him directly and spoke his word. He was a prophet unlike any other. When I talk about the First Testament, I think nobody can understand the the, the First Testament without understanding the, the three central characters of the First Testament, Abraham, Moses, and David. Those three are the anchor points of the revelation that God gave. And without those three, we would not have a New Testament today. Moses' place is secure. He's a man who saw God, heard God. He's a man who spoke the word of God perfectly and a man upon whose writings gave us the foundation for the entire Bible. To talk about the greatness of Moses is no small thing. We could go on with accolade after accolade after accolade and tell about the greatness of Moses, and yet there are a couple of things that we ought to know even about the law that Moses gave. While it was a perfect law and it revealed the righteousness of God perfectly, it never changed the human heart. The law was incapable of doing that. The law was heard, and yet the human heart was still filled with unrighteousness and sin. The people who saw the miracles of God and the daily outpouring of manna in the wilderness still were not ready to surrender to God. All the law in the world could not change the central problem with the entire human race. Yes, the law was given through Moses, and yes, it gives us a glimpse of the glory of God, but it gives us a glimpse and leaves us as we were before. And finally, if there's anything to be learned from the life of Moses, is that in the end, that generation perishes in the desert. Moses built a tabernacle. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Moses gave us a representation of the glory of God in his writings and in the tabernacle, but Jesus is the very representation of the glory of God. Jesus is God come to us in human flesh. Moses spoke to God. But Jesus, John 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is not only the one who speaks the Word of God. He is the only begotten of the Father. As the old, you know, as the old um, uh, confessions of faith remind us, He is God of God, light of light. True God come from true God. If you ever want to catch an image of what it means for Jesus to be begotten of the Father, I love to use this as an illustration. You know, um, Kathy and I have one son. We have two daughters. We have one son. He's my only begotten son. Now, would it surprise you to say that he was a giraffe? Well, he's not. He's a human being. Does that surprise you? Of course it doesn't. He's begotten. 
and not made. When we make something, we make something of a different kind than ourselves. But when we beget, we beget something who shares in our substance, in our essence. When we as human beings beget, we beget a child who shares fully in our humanity. Just like his old man, my son Jonathan, has a point of beginning and he will have a point of an end. Just like his old man, my son Jonathan is not only fully human, but he shares fully in Adamic sin. My son human is one creation among many, but Jesus, begotten of the Father, shares fully in the essence of the Father. If there is but one God, then the Son must also be the one true God, for he shares in his essence. He is begotten and not made. Moses spoke with God, but this is God who has come to us. And not just that. The law of our Lord Jesus Christ is a law that comes to us and transforms the human heart. I want to add one more thing about the contrast between Jesus and Moses, and it is this. It goes all the way back to Numbers chapter 20, and you may remember the account. People of Israel are grumbling as they have been many times before, but this time they're thirsty. They're out in the desert, and if you've been in those kind of desert, you know, water becomes essential for life itself. We're dying here. We're perishing. Moses goes to God. And God says, speak to the rock. And when you speak to the rock, water will gush out. It'll become such a river. It'll be enough for 20 million people to drink. I'm sorry, 2 million people to drink and be satisfied. But you'll remember Moses' response. By this time, he's so frustrated. He's so angry at the constant complaining and bickering against his leadership, the going after idolatry. If it's not one thing, it's another thing. And finally, he stands up with his staff in his hand and says, you rebels! Must we bring water out of this rock and strikes that rock twice with his staff and water gushes out and God is deeply displeased with his servant. You dishonored me, says the Lord, in the sight of the entire community. You were to speak to the rock so that the community would know that it comes from the mouth of God. And instead you struck the rock much like a magician would strike it. And you made yourself look like one of the magicians of Egypt. And you brought dishonor on me. And because of that, you will not enter into the promised land. I want you to contrast that with Jesus. Hebrews 4 verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet without sin. First John 3 verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin and in him there was no sin. And 1 Peter 1 18 and 19 reminds us that he is the unblemished and spotless lamb of God. You know, I read a survey recently that said that among um, Christian millennials, a great many of them now believe that Jesus must have sinned like everyone else. And I believe that we have not been teaching well. It's not just that Jesus withstood the temptation when he was in the wilderness just prior to his public ministry. But Jesus was harassed in ways that Moses would never have known. The religious teachers constantly harangued him. They accused him of breaking the Sabbath. 
They said he was in league with the devil, and they even said he was possessed by the devil. The religious leaders in the end of his life were making a deal with the Roman authorities themselves to have their Messiah put to death. There was not a moment in Jesus' life in which he was not constantly being tested and probed and criticized and slandered until, as Isaiah told us, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet with all those pressures and with all those temptations and with all that must have been there constantly with him to lash out and finally act in a way that was in keeping with just simply an angry man, we find our Lord and Savior even nailed to the cross and whispering a prayer, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do. How do we have such a Savior? One who was tested in ways that Moses could not have dreamt, and yet was without sin. Not one moment did he disobey his Father. Not one moment did he give in to temptation from within. Not one moment did he react in a way which was befitting an unrighteous man in every single area? He acted as his father was directing him. Never in the history of the human race have we seen such a human being, one who is righteous in every respect and one who offers mercy and grace. So at Christmas time, isn't it wonderful to do this one thing, to remember Christ coming into the world. Objectively, the greatest human being that has ever lived among us. And then, of course, we say more, don't we? Yes, fully human. But this was God come to us clothed in human flesh. Let's remember the greatness of what has happened. Of all the great stories that are told of human beings, never has there been a man who has given what he has given and who has set free those whom he has set free from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue on earth. Moses saved Israel. Jesus, the second Adam, saves the human race. Well, we're going to go to a time of prayer, and I ask you to join me in prayer. I know people are coming to the front. Um, let me end simply by reading John 5, 45 to 47. Jesus is saying, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. He's speaking to the religious leaders. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? For those of us who believe, the great Moses will at the end of the age... Rise and bend the knee before the greatest man who has ever lived, Jesus, and join the rest of us in giving him thanks. Heavenly Father, at this Christmas season, as we remember the events that surround Jesus' birth, we remember that Jesus not only was a wonderful child that was born among us, and it's nice to hear of stories of, of um, children being born, and nice of hearing stories of uh, supposed innocence and and also nice to hear stories of God coming in humility. But this is our great God. This is God come among us. Moses built a tabernacle in the wilderness. Jesus, by his own blood, invites us into the Holy of Holies. Oh, we're overwhelmed. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful Christmas story. 
Thank you, for it is the beginning of the gospel. It is the hope of the ages. And Lord, we could speak of Moses. We could speak of Adam. We could speak of Abraham or Isaac. We could speak of Joshua. We could speak of David. We could speak of Isaiah or Hezekiah or one of the great saints that have come. Even John the Baptist, whom Jesus said was the greatest that had come until then. Yet all of them, O Lord God, are brought low before this one, this child that has come to us. We bow down and we worship. And we say, you are our Lord and our God. And it is fitting for us to give you thanks. It is fitting at this time of the year to celebrate our Savior has come. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.